Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October 15th, 2015, and this is episode 1227 of the Survival Podcast. I have... 127 written there, and I had to think about it for a second, but it's 1227. Today we're going to talk about something that recently happened. I, I would have actually talked about this way sooner, but of course I had my trip planned, and I, you know, I just didn't have time to research it, talk to the people I needed to talk to about it, find out full information. So now that I'm back, I'm bringing it to you the first, you know, regular show of the week. And uh, it's thoughts on Oath Keepers going, quote, operational. And an article that went out by Oath Keepers, and it's caused a huge stir of both positive and negative and some things that are very, very inaccurate uh, in the interpretation of what Stewart is saying and why he's saying them. I want to clear some of that up. I want to talk about what's great about the plan, some holes or problems I see with the plan, and uh, how we might refine it and make it even better. <clears throat> Before I do that, though, Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is uh, Backwoods Home Magazine. You know, Backwoods Home Magazine is kind of a special sponsor to have for me. I've been reading them and subscribing to them since uh, 1993. That's, that says something. They were the first magazine I ever kind of like subscribed to as a grown-up. You know, when I was... Uh, When I was a teenager living on my own before I went into the military, I, I didn't have money to do things like that. And um, when I was in the Army, I just didn't really pay attention to what was going on anywhere except right in front of me. And when I got home, you know, I uh, realized I was going to stay in this little rural town I grew up in, and I was going to go to this big city called Dallas uh, that I, I'd heard of only on TV for a football team and a, and a late-night TV show. And uh, I got down there, and I found a lot of really great things, but I also found a huge hole in who I was and what I was all about. You know, I couldn't just go out the back door and shoot anymore or go fishing and, and trapping and things like I had grown up. You know, I'm a guy that bought my first car uh, by picking scrap copper off of a mountain and paid for the insurance with furs from a trap line. Um, and, and leaving that behind was hard and that rural life. And Backwoods Home was my connection back to that. They've remained a great connection for me and a great source of information. And now I get to work with great people like Dave Duffy and Jackie Clay and Masada Yub, and that's just awesome. Check them out today, Backwoods Home Magazine. And um, if you're MSB, remember, they have a special offer for you if you're becoming a new subscriber, and you should subscribe to Backwoods Home. It's an incredible source of self-sufficiency and self-reliance information from a libertarian view. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. If you want to learn to make knives, go to KnifeKits.com. If you already know how to make knives and you're doing the kit knife thing, go to KnifeKits.com. If you are a master bladesmith looking for the coolest raw materials, go to KnifeKits.com. If you want to do anything with knives, they've got it. Check them out. And if you're just learning, they have books and DVDs and a helpful staff that will help you figure out what you need to get started in a great skill of knife making. Last but not least, do consider joining the Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. To email me before, not after, but before you join, I will send you a special discount code thanking you for your service. And uh, I also extend that to firefighters, EMTs, and first responders like paramedics. Uh, all of you guys qualify for that discount. Just put service discount in the subject line. Send the email to jack at the survival podcast.com. 
And uh, like I said, I'll get back to you just as soon as I possibly can with that discount code. Use one or two sentences to tell me about your service. Don't write me a book or send me a copy or ID or anything like that. I don't want to be responsible for, you know, privileged personal information. Just a few words telling me will be all I need to know. All right. With that wrapped up, um, I want to get into our main episode, but it is episode 1227. Yesterday was 1226. We didn't talk about the year 1226 because I read the synopsis on Wikipedia and went, nobody would know or care about any of this stuff. So it was a snorebore. I put a link. This is what I'm going to do. If there's nothing in the history notes that I think anybody would find interesting, uh, I'm going to, uh, what I'm going to do is simply leave it out and not do it that day, but I will always put a link if you want to take a little look at it in the show notes for you to the uh, the year of the episode. 1227, though, has some interesting things in it. Remember, England and France have been at war almost constantly since we started doing this, and we've been through about 20 episodes or 20 years of history now. Uh, but they actually make a truce with each other in March of 1227. We'll see how long that lasts. Uh, pope Honorarius III was the 178th pope, He dies, and he's replaced by Pope Gregory the Ninth. Uh, most people really don't think that's significant, but I always like to point out when these people that we actually have records on die, what their age was, especially when we're in the 1200s, when we're told by modern medicine we'd all be dead at 30 if it wasn't for them. That would make uh, the Pope uh, Honorarius 79 on his death. Another death that you can't leave out if you're talking about this year, uh, because almost everybody in history has heard the name, Genghis Khan, founder of the Mongol Empire, dies. He was born in 1162, means his age was 65 when he died, and this guy probably had more holes and piercings and slices in his body than anybody, so uh, hanging on that long is pretty impressive. I'll remind you that according to the Center for Disease Control, the average death of a, of a, of a male in America today is about 72.8 years. Um, just for shits and giggles, let's figure out the average age that, you know, Honorarius and Genghis Khan represent if we add their ages and divide them. I, I really don't know, but I'm just curious. It's too perfect. The number's 72. Um, there's no science in that at all. It's just interesting, isn't it? I'll also, um, somebody who died quite a bit younger, uh, probably in battle, I would imagine, uh, Jossi, who was the son of Genghis Khan, uh, who was born in 1181. So there's your, there's your young death. And even our young death in uh, our history lesson from 1227 was uh, 46 years of age. Uh, I can find no uh, reason for Joshi's death, uh, simply that he died in Eurasia from the further extents of the uh, existing Mongol Empire at the time. So both uh, the son of Genghis Khan and Genghis Khan died in the year 1227. Again, one at uh, 49 years of age and the other one at 65 years of age. Anyway, uh, let's get into the main topic of today's show. I, I want to talk to you about this for a variety of reasons. And one is to quell the hysteria that, that, that's showed up around this. So what happened is, you know, Oath Keepers got together and said, hey, we got to get serious about what we're going to do if this economy completely falls apart And we have chaos around the country. How are we going to be a force for good in this? How are we going to prevent a complete drop in decay into madness? How are we going to stand? How are we going to do it honorably? How are we going to work with local authorities? And they looked at, as any military person would, what is the most effective force 
in military operational strategy when you are outmanned and outgunned by your adversary and when you have to use a small number of people to accomplish something that generally would be done by a large number of people. And that, of course, will lead you to special operations in general. Uh, and each you know, branch of the military has its own version of uh, special operations-style soldiers. And uh, you could debate who's better, who's worse, who's the best. Who, but, but the reality is it's not even done that way. The military doesn't look at it that way. There's some rivalry between, you know, the Green Beret and the SEAL. But the reality is each of these special operations-style forces is a specialist at operating in a certain way and has certain things that they're designed to do. And of all of them, it is the, the Army Special Forces, that we can, you know, consistently call the Green Berets, right, who goes out and multiplies their force. So a SEAL is more likely to be used to hit a target and, and come back or to snatch somebody, right, or to take out a target. A special forces team is more likely to be put into a, a behind the line scenario, work with indigenous peoples, and you have a, you know, a 12 man A team that might create a thousand man force or better. And then move on and do it again. And then move on and do it again. They do it with money. They do it with linguistics and understanding the language. They do it through winning over hearts and minds is, is the typical way this is put. And they do it covertly. So they're right in the middle of the shit. And they're converting people that are there who aren't really happy with the way things are to, hey, we're your friends. Let's work together. We'll teach you what you need to know. We'll show you how to put a bridge in over that, that place that the government hasn't done for you. So you can do it for yourself. We speak your language. We understand you. We'll help you find food. We'll help you protect yourself. We're really good at combat. So while we're here, if these guys that you're worried about come in as enforcers, we will take them out. All right? And that model was the best model of all the military models. And remember, Oath Keepers is made up mostly of prior service United States military. We have a law enforcement contingency in there that's pretty big, but the vast majority are not active duty, they're prior service, and they're military. And I would bet you that the majority of the uh, law enforcement people that are official members, paying charter members of Oath Keepers, are also prior service military. Um, and I've talked to a lot of law enforcement officers who go, yeah, it sounds great and all, but they won't step. They won't step. The ones that do, shake your hand, brother. But a lot of them won't. They just won't. They can't commit to that because they can't accept that it could happen, that they could be asked to violate their oaths. You know, I've had several tell me, well, they'd never asked me to do that. And then I said, why then would you not commit to not doing it? And they never have an answer for that. So this is the mindset that this, this came together with. So in this article, where Stuart lays out this plan that I'm going to lay out for you in today's episode, give you what I think is the positive, and not the bad, but the, the things that need to be shorn up. Because I don't think there's anything bad as a whole with this. But in his article, Stuart says, We urge you to presume the worst in the short term and to work in three- to four-month sprints. Assume that a collapse will be triggered this fall-winter and do all you can to get yourselves and your communities ready. Now, sadly, many people read that to say, The end is coming in three to four months, and we have intel saying that's the case. That is not the case. That is not what Stuart said. That is not what Stuart meant, and I can tell you that because I have talked to Stuart directly, and he said, That is not, that is not, not, not what I'm saying. Okay? So, 
the guy that wrote the article is telling me, and, and through my intern, Josiah, who I sent to the meetup because I wasn't here to meet with Stuart this time, um, the first, in fact, Joe said the first thing Stuart did was walk up to him and said, oh, you're Josiah, nice to meet you. That is not what I meant, right? Because I had already kind of hit, hit him up by email saying, man, everybody's freaking out about this. And I had actually emailed him about the article before I read it because I was getting ready to leave. I had a million things going on. And all of a sudden, I started getting dozens, I mean dozens, of hysterical emails from listeners going, man, something bad's coming. The, the Oath Keepers are getting mobilized because it's going to happen now or in the next three to four months, and they know it. And I'm like, hold on, man. Then I ended up in the middle of an email chain between someone that was objecting to what Stuart was doing and himself, both guys I like, and I said, I will not be party to you guys fighting with each other. Um, but he was on this kind of kick that something's coming real soon, too. So... I'm like, what the hell's going on here? So I finally took time on the plane to read the article in full, and I'm like, that's not what it says, but I can understand how this happened. So let me tell you how this happened. First of all, it's very bad timing. Uh, if this article would have come out a month earlier, I don't think it would have happened. Uh, maybe two months earlier. Because for the past month, there's been a rumor mill buzzing, and I've talked about it on the show and said, don't even pay attention to it, that there's a planned collapse for October. Yeah, we're in October 15th. It don't seem like they've executed a planned collapse yet. I think the, and I'm going to get into later why I don't think the collapse is planned. It's simply expected and accepted at this point by the people in control. It's not a planned collapse. They'll hold it together as long as they can until they can't anymore. If it wasn't, they would have already done this. Okay? Let me just put it to you that way. It would have already been done. And I talked yesterday about why it won't come as quick as some people think. But there's this rumor mill going on right now, that it's coming now. And then there's this guy on the radio saying, it's coming, they're going to do it. You know they're going to do it. I've been telling you they're going to do it. Look what they're doing. All right, you know who he is. And he does this once a year, it's coming now. And I guess his plan is, sooner or later it'll happen, and then he said it'll happen. So you've got, and that guy has millions of people listening to him. So you got this rumor mill, even in our own TSP community. I know, you know, very respected members of our forum and things that believe it, and yet... They don't know, they're not going to know what to do on November 1st. I, I really feel that way. Um, and then you've got Oath Keepers coming out with this thing at the same time, and it just seems to meld together, and perception bias takes over. And all of a sudden, oh, it's real. Not all bad that people feel that way for a little while, as long as they rein it back in and get control. Okay. Then the other thing is, what happens when a non-military-minded individual reads military thought? See, this is, this is standard operating procedure. You know, military types inside the military, we call this SOP, standard operating procedure. We do things a certain way in the military to prepare ourselves mentally. So we do something that you'll hear about tomorrow, scenario-based training. So when the military goes out and does a field training exercise or an FTX, and there's supposed to be a hostile enemy out there, we don't just go out there and clean our weapons, dig foxholes, do maneuvers and pretend that it's going on. We actually take something called an op four or an opposing force and we send them out to engage us. And they're probably our, you know, in our own unit many times. We have a little group of people that, you know, volunteer out of like each platoon. You take a few people and they come attack a whole company or a whole battalion like raiders. Or sometimes you do force on force with two full, two full, you know, platoons or two full companies or even two full battalions. Mock gaming each other. And they're not both U.S. forces. One plays the role of the most probable enemy that we're going to face in the near term. Okay? So the concept 
of saying something. You got to take that thought. Now, put it into the concept of Seward's quote again. We urge you to presume the worst in the short term and to work in three to four month sprints. Assume that a collapse will be triggered this fall, winter, and do all you can to get yourselves and your communities ready. What this means scenario based training, scenario based organization. Stop piddling around, stop fiddle-farting around, and do what needs to be done as though it needs to be done this minute because you might have to have it done this minute, right? Now, a military person takes that and goes, okay, that's the commander kicking us in the ass and saying our readiness is not high enough. A civilian with no exposure to the military reads that to go, oh, crap, it's happening now. Where what the military commander is saying, this could happen any time, assume it'll happen soon, and be ready. And, and those two factors, the timing of all this rumor mill crap and the civilian mind not understanding the military mind converged, and now there's blogs and news media and all kinds of alternative crap out there going, it's coming, look, Stuart Rhodes says, Stuart Rhodes did not say that, and the people writing this, I presume, have read the article, and no, it's not really, but kind of fits what I'm trying to spin, so therefore I'm going to say it because my perception bias and my readership is based on this, and that's bad. So I wanted to start out with just like how we got to that level with it and why that's not the case and how I know personally that it's not the case. And now I want to talk about what the plan is. I'm going to go quickly through the plan. I'm not going to read Studer's article. It's very long. If you want all the details, you can go there and read it. I'm going to pick things out of it that I think you'll find interesting and pick things that I think are good and things that maybe we need to shore up if we do this and a better understanding of it so that it actually can work because it's not going to work the way it's lined out. Because And I'll get to why, but there's basically the body count to do it this way is not there right now. And it's going to require an adapt, improvise, overcome mindset that unfortunately most people don't have today. If you give them a recipe and it says parsley, they can't go, I don't have parsley. What's kind of like parsley? Or just admit the parsley and the soup will still be good, right? They'll just fixate on the fact I don't have parsley. So, so we'll get to that in a second. But here's the basics of the plan. A team, a central team. This is your A-team component. Two communications experts. These are going to be guys that can run things like ham radio gear, CB gear, tweak it, you know, make it, make it do the limits of what's possible with as little resources as, as they possibly can, right? Two medical experts, right? People that are able to treat illness and disease. Two engineers. People that are able to build things, fix things, repair things, improvise things. Two food reserve specialists. And then four to six, what he's calling scouts, which are people that are highly trained military types that can go out and see what's going on and act as a defensive force and an alarm system as well, going, hey, there is a problem. It is coming this way. This is what it looks like. Everybody must or let's go. we got to put this down. All right? So it is a very military-minded thing, but again, run by military types. That's why it would be this. Now, Then the next thing is a logistical support team. Um, I actually was part of several times what was known as an LSE company or logistical support element. This is a group of combat engineers goes to the field and they go to the field with the intent to build a road for 10 miles in the middle of Honduras. Now, they have people that can handle doing some water. They have people that handle things like cooking. They have people that handle things like medical. They, but they do not have... Anywhere near the capacity 
to provide for all those logistical transportation, supply, all of that mobilized in the field, completely cut off from behind the scenes, basically. With you got a helicopter or two coming in a couple times a week with some equipment, and that's it. And you got to you got to be out there, and you got to be a self-sufficient mini town. So what they'll do is they'll go to units that generally would act in a supporting capacity of them, but those units aren't going with them. And they will assemble from those supporting units that normally would be there in a major, like if the whole, you know, the whole command was going, they would all be there. But they're not. Because this is a, a, a specialized mission, go, deploy, do, return. Now you can't take everybody with you to do that. The budget's not there and the logistics aren't there. And you can't take an entire company that's not really designed to just do that for you. So you assemble a logistical support element, you consider it a company, and you attach it to that that command when it deploys. And you do it by tanned selecting people from the various companies. You go to one company and say, we need a heavy wheel vehicle mechanic and we need a light wheel vehicle mechanic. And that company doesn't always say yes. Sometimes they'll say, We can give you one, but not the other. You're, we don't have the man, so that you, you, this is kind of negotiated out. And generally, they want the very best of what you have. So then you're selected to go do this, and you get, you form a new company, and you go out and you provide all the logistics. The reason I tell you that is so you can understand the mindset that this logistical support team is put together with. All right, but it's not the type of thing there, but it's the same thinking. What they want is a peace officer liaison in a sheriff posse team. So that's somebody that talks to the sheriff, the local police department. Someone who can go in and say, hey, we're available to help if this happens in advance. And that person is a double agent in a way, okay, in a positive way. Here's what I mean. As long as that local law enforcement is going to keep its oath, As long as that local law enforcement is going to be a force for good, then that liaison is there to make sure when that happens that those two units can work together. If they're going to be oath breakers, if they're going to be the boot on the throat, that liaison knows and says, we cannot trust these people. Now, Stewart doesn't say that, but I know that because it's a natural result. You're either going to find, as a liaison, if you're this person in a team like this, that the people there really do want to help their local community or their brainwashed federal thugs. I should say brainwashed federally trained thugs. And I think what you'll find is the bigger the city, the bigger the metroplex, etc., that these people operate in, the more brainwashed they are. And as you move out to more rural communities and the edges of these and the local PDs, you'll find much more friendly folks. So this liaison officer is not just to make sure the connection's there, but that the right connection's there. And I think it's incredibly important. That person would best be a reserve officer, retired sheriff's department officer, someone with instant cred with that other side. Hey, I've been there. I've done your job. And I think that these teams probably need more than one, probably two or three. This might be the most important part of the logistical support team they've put together. Next, you need a, li a liaison for the military and National Guard. And this would be ideally like a retired sergeant major or master sergeant. I think that's better than an officer, personally. But I would take a, you know, a retired colonel as well. Someone that can go talk to the local National Guard. Because they're the ones that are most likely to be turned on the people. 
and just have that relationship in advance. And no, this unit, they're not going to do it. There's, we're already there. We already exist there. We already have brothers there. They're, they are for preserving peace. And you know what? These guys, we just don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But these guys might be a danger. These guys might be willing to go in and just start busting heads without even thinking. To have that dialogue in advance and that knowledge in advance. Neighborhood watch teams. So this would be your basic neighborhood watch. And just knowing who would do what in advance so that it becomes necessary, it gets done. Hugely, hugely important. Local government team. This would be a team that talks to town councils, county commissioners, everything at like the county level and down. And determine like, you know, are you going to let this happen? Well, I don't think it's going to happen. Fine, let's assume it's not. But if it does, what would you do? We're here to help. We're here to serve. We're here to protect. And we're going to do it whether you want us to or not, but we, we prefer to do it with you. And that person would probably be best be a, a, a person who had served in that government. And because the dichotomy exists, it'd be best if you could find at least a few from both sides of the aisle. And understand, this isn't a Democrat-Republican thing. If the economy sinks into oblivion, it's going to be an us-and-them thing. And there's a lot more of us than them. But there's the us and the them, and then there's the clueless center that's the vast majority. And without some level of control and protection, that vast majority will go insane and give the people in power the excuse that they'll be looking for. We need this stabilization force. That's what Stewart's saying, and I completely agree. The severity of the event, I think that they take a more dark view of than I do, But my view is not sunshine, roses, and angels, and unicorn farts. I'll tell you that. It's, it's a pretty dark place as well. Um, and then we need intelligence teams that are there to gather intelligence, that are there to determine you know, what's going on. And I would assume that a lot of the intelligence that they're analyzing would actually be gathered by your peace officer liaison, your military National Guard liaison, your neighborhood watch teams, your local government teams. These are people that, yeah, they'll gather some of their own intelligence, but the real power of an intelligence team is to get all of this data that comes from all these different sources and put it together like pieces of a puzzle and determine a conclusion. And he also says that he believes that, just like special forces, all Oath Keepers are expected to learn light infantry skills, encouraged to attend like an Appleseed rifle program, shoot the rifleman standards. Uh, I think that's good, too. But I think that... As you, as you go through this, um, before you can start to examine how do we make it better, we have to examine what is the expectation. So let me give you what Oath Keepers say the plan is by the establishment, how they think this whole thing will eventually go down and why they're, they're asking you to prepare. Um, and this is straight from Stewart's article. These are quotes from the article. Intentionally trigger a catastrophic economic collapse as an economic neutron bomb. All right. So what he means by that is when the economy collapses, the people are still there, the buildings are still there, all the resources are still there, but everything's decimated. And now the next part is you let the country descend into chaos. So the plan is just let it happen, let it go crazy, and then ride in like the cavalry to save us by means of martial law, scrapping our Constitution once and for all. 
So that's the, that, that's the big thing. Oath Keepers, at least Stewart, who wrote the article, is under the impression our government intends to purposefully collapse its own economy. This is the one place we completely disagree. I completely disagree with that. Here's what I think the plan is. They're going to cling to their paradigm as long as they can. Stave off collapse by any means necessary to buy as much time and get as much in place before it happens as possible. At the same time, this is simultaneous, these first two steps, accept that the collapse is inevitable and plan for it. Anybody with a brain knows this economy cannot be sustained this way. And at some point, a new paradigm will have to be rolled out. And that can go bumpy, relatively smoothly, maybe with a lot of pain, gnashing of teeth, and recession, depression, total oblivion, and a million shades of gray in between. And you just don't know. And if you're into contingency planning, and trust me, folks, our government is, not for your benefit, but for their own, then you've planned for all contingencies. So they accept that the some sort of collapse is inevitable and plan for it with multiple shades of gray. Then watch the country descend into chaos. They're not going to let it. They'll do what they can to control it as it goes down. But in, in, in reality, there's not enough support to fix it with what they have. All they can do is step on people. They can't feed people. So they're going to watch it descend into chaos. And then, <laughs> right in likely cavalry to save us by means of martial law and not letting a crisis go to waste. So in the end, the net results of what I think and what Stewart thinks are the same. But the severity, the logistical problems... The potential for starvation, disease, grid-down scenarios are a little different, but the main difference is the timeline. If you believe the government intends to do this, then you better be prepared for tomorrow morning for it to happen. And I'll tell you why. Give me a reason they haven't. Give me a reason they haven't. If that's the plan, why not just do it? Well, they need more, more force? They don't need more force. They can wipe off every scrap of life off the planet if they wanted to. They've had enough force to do this since the 60s. Right? Even if you rule out nuclear usages. Right? They have enough force to put down what, if they're going to just scrap the Constitution and say to hell with it and they just start killing people until people comply. They've had enough force to do that for a long time. Okay, So they haven't done it yet. Why not? Now my belief is that the reason we haven't collapsed yet is, one, they're pretty good manipulators of psychology. And the money is all based on psychology. And as long as people believe the money has value, people both domestically and in other nations believe there's value to the dollar, the economy's stable no matter how much debt we have. Okay, As long as people believe it. Money is not a thing. Money is not gold. Money is not silver as I hold an ounce of silver in my hand. And understand how valuable it is. I'm telling you it's not money. Money is not script. Money is not paper. Money is not a bar. Money is not a bag of seeds. Money is an agreement on a unit of exchange. It's a psychological contract. And the U.S. dollar is the largest psychological contract of money that has ever existed. The nation will fail when the psychological contract is broken. That's when the economy fails. And the only thing you can do then is come up with a new psychological contract, a new form of money. Devalue, revalue, 
reevaluate however you can. You come up with a new paradigm. Hey, we have all this shitloads of gold in, store in Fort Knox. Let's go back to the gold standard. Most likely, most likely, what they'll do, they'll go back to a gold-backed currency with a fractional gold backing. They won't say a dollar for a dollar. Or they'll do something like they'll just I know you constitutional so-called scholars will tell me this isn't true, but the reality is the government at the federal level has the ability to set the weights and measures. Right? It's right in the, in the Constitution. So what you do is you come out and say, the United States dollar right, is now set to gold at a ratio of 10,000 to 1. So a $10,000 equal one ounce of gold. Or 5,000 to one. Or whatever the number needs to be to make the case to the rest of the world, you can take U.S. dollars again. And what happens in the meantime? Utter chaos. People go crazy. And the value of your money gets cut. Massive instant inflation. Not hyperinflation. Let's just say, you know what? We want to reduce the amount we owe. By 50%. Devalue the money by 50% overnight and it's done. We still owe, I don't know, by the time $25 trillion, $30 trillion, but we can pay it off as though it were $15 trillion. Reset button. This is, this is how this will get done. Because it's always what every government has ever done. And there's too much intrinsic wealth of the United States for it not to be done. Now, the caveat is that much of our intrinsic wealth is being systematically globalized and is being held by U.S. corporations through foreign shell corporations. In other words, the biggest one we know of, and this is what we know, Smithfield Pork Products, largest pork product producer in the United States. Now, food is gold, right? Gold is food and food is gold. In a collapse, in any scenario, you want to harness the power of people and control them, you control their food, you control them. Smithfield Pork Products is now 100% owned by a Chinese corporation along with uh, two, it's actually two Chinese corporations and one corporation out of Singapore. They were purchased. And what happened, of course, the Congress looks at this and goes, should we really let foreign entities control U.S. food production? I mean, should we? And they said, yeah, we'll approve that. Now, why? Do you know why? Because <laughs> the majority stakeholder in the deal that's now operating inside the main Chinese corporation is Goldman Sachs. So Goldman Sachs, who makes money every time money's printed in this country by taking a piece of it as part of the debt cycle, now owns the largest producer of pork products through a Chinese shell corporation Guess who is the, 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 the CEO and primary funder of this Yale Corporation? It's the son of a former Chinese prime minister. Yep. So Goldman Sachs just bought themselves a whole shitload of uh, Chinese passports, I'm sure, right there. They're not planning to leave, folks. They're planning to operate outside the system and still control us. The writing's on the wall. So let's talk about what I think the problems with the Oath Keepers team plan is right now, the, the places it needs to be shorn up. The first one is I don't think people think sufficiently, and they fail to adapt. Now, I know that most of the people in Oath Keepers are military personnel, and they are trained to think. But we cannot do this plan with just the roster of existing Oath Keepers. 
we're, there's, there's a lot of us. I think the roster now is 30,000 of us who stepped up and said, I will keep my oath. But let's be honest, about 30,000, a lot of people do it because it sounds good, it feels good, and they believe it, but are they active? Are they doing anything? Let's say 20,000 are active and doing something. Whether it's the way I am, whether it's out training teams, whatever it is, 20,000 people, that's a lot. But when you start spreading that out over geography, how many of them exist together as a team? Okay, now, further, how many places are there where we have the body count of that team to have two communications experts, two medical experts, two engineers, two food reserve specialists, four to six scouts, a peace officer and liaison sheriff's posse team, military and national guard liaison, a neighborhood watch team, local government team, and an intelligence team? And the answer is probably not one damn place. So we absolutely have to go bigger than Oath Keepers to do this. We have to recruit more Oath Keepers, and we have to bring some people in that I don't give a damn if they know what an Oath Keeper is, as long as they're you know loyal to peace and our Constitution. So we have to get bigger than that. And then we're going to have to say, you know what? You know, we're not surrounded by SF-style people. We're not even surrounded by military people. We're not even surrounded by gun people, by and large, unless we live in certain rural communities, Right? So the idea that we'll even have all of these people willing and ready to go and somewhat military thinking in any one place are low. There might be a few places these exist. Most of them will actually be survival-minded communities that already started doing this. And the A-Team model, guys, I, I put this out a year ago. I said a year ago on the show, maybe a little more than a year ago, that that's how you'd have to operate in your local community. You find as many people as you can that are on board, and then if something goes wrong, you go out and organize the community. right? And Oath Keepers are saying, do more before. Well, it's great if you can. What we have to do, though, is we have to think in two phases. Organize, then draftee. Okay? So when a major conflict breaks out, the government takes the troops that it has and sends them off to war. And if that is not sufficient, they start sending out letters in the mail that say, guess what, you're now a soldier. Whether you want to be or not. It's called drafting. And they fill holes with their draftees. This plan needs a draftee plan. And, and this is what I mean. You might go talk to a doctor that lives within a couple miles of you. Find out he's a doctor. You might talk to him about this, and he might wave you off with, because I'm a liberal doctor, and I, Obama will fix it, or whatever. Now, the day that this falls apart, he's going to have an oh shit moment and realize, gee, Obama can't fix it, or whoever the ass plan in charge is, Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter, can't fix it, right? And he's going to remember that conversation with you. And if people are hurt, most doctors are going to do what they can to fix it. He just became one of your medical specialists. It's time for him to be drafted. Not by force, but by, look, doc, we need you now. This is a re we're already here's the resources we have for you. What do you have? Here's here's how we're going to protect your home, right? Who do you need to get in touch with? We have calm people that can relay information, right? And that's the way we're, this is going to have to work. You're going to have to. So my big concern is what I said earlier about the soup with the parsley. You give somebody a recipe for chicken soup and it says to put parsley in it, and they don't have any. They will not make chicken soup until they get some parsley. I don't know why. I, I've never thought this way. 
It's, it's one of my biggest struggles in life with people that they don't just make a freaking decision and do what they can with what they have now. But I've over the years, specifically as an employer, learned that it is the case. You have to tell people, do this, and if that's not there, then do this, and if that's not there, then do You have to give it to them all the way down. And it takes a very special person, which I don't understand why, to be able to go, don't have parsley, making a soup anyway. And it's not about soup, guys. That's a metaphor. right? We don't have two medical specialists. We don't even have one. What do we do? We could train one. But this guy's a better ham operator. Let him operate the ham radio. Go find somebody with some medical expertise and have them on your probables of draftees. Right? Would it be better if your medical specialist was also a guy that had been to an appleseed shoot, was a sworn oath keeper with prior military service? Yes. <laughs> Guess what? Good luck. Good luck. If you have one, awesome. If you have two, better. I want to hear from anybody, though, that has a complete team like this right now with all of these positions full. Just one. There might be one, but I'm not sure. See, what we have to understand is it's much easier to design on paper than in reality. And what Stewart's done is a masterful design of a team that would be in place in this scenario, but with none of the restrictions of where do you get them? Where do we find them? How do we get them to sign on? So I believe there has to be this mentality of we'll assemble a fractional unit, everything we can get out of this list, which is probably exactly what he expects. But if you don't tell people that, they won't get it. I don't, again, I, for the life of me, do not understand people in general. I'd say 90% of the population thinks this way. Well, i got to do exactly what it says. You know, these are, these are people that can't cook a meal without a recipe. And if one thing's missing, they can't do it. I, I don't get it. But I've learned you have to spell it out. So that has to be the plan. I'll find the people that could do this, and I'll talk to them, and I'll liaison with them, and I'll stay friendly with them. And the worse things get in a descent, the more I'll pull them in a little bit. And if things really kick off overnight, I'll say, this is what I've been talking about. We need you now. And because that person will now be in a place where their entire paradigm was just busted apart into a million pieces, they'll cling to whatever is most stable around them. And if it's not you, it will be the cavalry that's riding in to save us by martial law. So it better be you. The next thing I see is the comm specialist. My experience, and I've talked to a lot of people that use ham gear and stuff like that and use radios and can bounce a signal off freaking star a thousand billion miles away and bounce it back around the sun. And I know it's not really true. I'm just kind of making the point that like they can do amazing things with a couple of watts of power, right? They're generally geeky. I don't mean that as an insult, but they just are. They're not charismatic. They're not the person that can make the soup without the parsley. They're not the person that can generally think how to motivate and inspire people. So I think in the communications world, there needs to be in these teams, if you can find it, the person that can articulate what's said. The person that can communicate in a way that's inspiring and motivating and breeds loyalty. 
So in the comm unit, there needs to not just be the technician, but the almost like a media specialist. Because in this scenario, there may not be media to tune into on the TV. You may have people disseminating information and then broadcasting it locally across CB networks. I think the most probable way that would happen if comms are really bad is you have hams interceding and doing the long-haul transmissions, and then you have transmissions during certain parts of the day. People turn their CB on you know, to channel 36 or whatever and listen in as one person broadcasts all the information that came in. And that has to be done by somebody that can take that information and say, this is what it means to us. We're in deep shit. Or, you know what? This is bad, but this is a thousand miles away. We got time before that gets here. Whatever it is. So I think that is something that I don't see. Now I'm back to Stewart's thing. Let's just build the dream team. If we had everybody we needed, who would we have? I think we need that at a team or at least a multi-team level. So if you have, re if you start building enough teams, you might have one person that does that out of like four sub-teams. That could be that person that says, this is what we need to tell people. This is how we need to explain it. This is like a commander, like a communications command person. Um, the next thing is, food reserve specialist, well, that assumes the reserves will exist. Food reserve specialist, that means that we're going to like gather up everything that's available. And we're going to make sure we can feed people out of the reserves. And we're going to we're gonna ration things. And we're going to figure things out. And we'll organize soup kitchens or whatever. Well, you better think about adding procurement to this. We need food procurement specialists. What can be wildcrafted? Where are the greatest concentrations of it? How can we grow our own food? How can we start putting the reserves into place in advance? What systems of production can be set up in advance? Those are, those are my two biggest. If we're going to build the team and just say, we're going to, what would it be if it was perfect? Those two positions I would see as needing to be created. Uh, let me talk about the good of the plan too, though. Um, one, it's a great template. If people will use it and adapt to what they don't have. I, I don't know, like, cause the only reason I even throw in, like, the things I would add, honestly, is cause Stuart asked me to. And I thought it was easier to do a whole episode for everybody than just be as, you know, consulted one on one. So, I'm improving it because I was asked to. But, honest to God, the template the man drew is beautiful. There, there's always something that can be a little bit better. But, Man, if we would actually take this and start organizing and trying to figure out who can do these things, not only would we know who can, we'd know where we're weakest. And we'd know where to look. And we would know, okay, if we don't have this, what can we do with what we have? So as long as people will cook the chicken soup without the parsley, beautiful template. Next, it has people thinking and talking differently. In spite of the fact that it was poor timing And the fact that the non-military mind does not understand the military mind. And some of it was taken out of context. A lot of people that were kind of like, yeah, someday this might be a problem. Are like, holy crap, what do I do? And holy crap is a great thing to have happen to you. As long as you're able to later on say, breathe, relax, chill out. Now let's do something about it. As long as you don't stay in hysteria mode. Slap in the face once in a while is exactly what you need. General Patton knew this, even though he got in trouble for it. Something tells me there were a few more of those thrown around than were reported. <laughs> But, I mean, seriously, it's good 
if people will adapt and use it and start thinking differently and, and, and accept that this is a real probable scenario, this economic falling apart. At some point along the way, we are going to deal with all of this and we are going to get the bill that has yet to be paid. And someone's going to have to pay it. And the people that ran the bill up will have climbed out of the window in the men's room and will be sitting over in China sipping freaking, uh, what are those, like Mai Tais, running our pork business, our corn business, our pharmaceutical businesses that will be, yeah, melting down, but still massive intrinsic wealth. And we'll be stuck dealing with the, the gnashing of teeth and the tears that go with paying the bill that they ran up. And to be fair, we've run up a lot of it ourselves too. We've believed in this paradigm. We've let these people do this. And sooner or later, there will be a reckoning. The next thing I think is it can work if we can bring more Oath Keepers in with real skills. I think we need to blow up the, the roster of Oath Keepers. I think that every single person out there, if you served in the military, if you ever held up your hand and said, I, John Samuel Spirico, which is my real name, do solemnly swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. If you've ever taken that oath and the words that go after it, Understand that the day you walked away and they punched a hole in your ID card, your oath didn't go away. And everybody out there that's in law enforcement, I'm talking to you now. Stop being the minority in Oath Keepers. Stop being the minority in Oath Keepers. If you are a law enforcement officer and you listen to this show, I'm, I never do this. But I'm telling you, take your ass over to the website, sign up, read the new oath. Understand, all it's asking you to do is reaffirm that which you've already sworn to do and stand up amongst your brother officers. Be the gray man where and when you have to be. But stand up where and when you can and talk to others. Find people in Oath Keepers in your area. Talk to them. Form the networks. If you have served or currently serving law enforcement or military, and you listen to this show, and you believe in the work we do, then believe in the work that Oath Keepers does. Oath Keepers is not about tearing the country apart. It's about holding it together. And it's about if other people try to tear it apart, standing and holding it together anyway. It's about an understanding that we are our brother's keeper if we're true Americans. We cannot be responsible for our neighbor's stupidity. But if we're sheepdogs, we're called to be responsible where and when we can for their safety and security. Because their security is our own security. If your neighbor's not safe, you're not safe. Do not fool yourself. Well, we'll be okay. Really? If you've served, stand and serve now. I don't know why there would be one person who ever took the original oath and meant it who would not reaffirm it. Stand. You can either stand in a coming crisis, 
whatever form it may have, or you can kneel. I'm going to say that one more time. And even though it wasn't my plan, close. I am done today. Those of you who have served or are currently serving in military and law enforcement, if this crisis comes to be, you can either stand or you can kneel. Well, I had to leave my family when the shot heard around the world. Called up those British bastards that put me to the sword. Well, I died a lowly subject, a king and monarchy. Yeah, I'm the first American who made this country free. What are you doing with my country? What are you doing with the founding truth? I gave my life so you could be free. And this is how, yeah, this is how you repay me. Well, I hit that beach running with an M1 in my hand. Before I got to cover, I was face down in the sand. I'm proud to die on D-Day, and I'd do it all again. The time has shown me death and war, breach politics and sin. What are you done with my country? What are you done with the white picket fence? I gave my life so you could be free. And this is how, yeah, this is how. You repay me Yeah, I keep looking down See it all go wrong My blood mixed with dirt If the Yankees call their home Well, I never would have done it If I knew what they would do The land I fought and died for The land that I gave you
Soldiers from the sky, fearless men who jump and die, men who mean just what they say, the brave men of the Green Beret, silver wings upon their chest. These are men. America's best 100 men will test today but only three when the green beret train to live off nature's land trained in combat and a hand men who fight One day. 